Hi, this is James Joker, and welcome to Reviews and Interviews. Tonight we're sitting down with Miles Grubb of After the Gold Rush Comics. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Okay, yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm Miles Grubb, and I am a uh, Seattle-based, but Northern California-raised uh, comic writer, and um, I, I make a couple different series focused on um, science and skepticism and kind of uh, returning an optimistic look to science fiction. So my probably most popular series is called After the Gold Rush, which um, is actually set in Orville, California, but in the future. And um, it was kind of a response to the cynical dystopian science fiction that's popular these days. I wanted to try to make something different, something that was based in science and shows the progress that we can make with, with um, the scientific method and also deals with issues of skepticism and uh, different secular topics. Um, and I have a couple of the series, a couple of fantasy ones, and a paleontology book. But uh, yeah, I'm mostly just working on comics, and I also have a video game in the works, but I can't talk about that too much right now. All right, well, I'll be obviously limit the conversation in that direction. Um, after the Gold Rush, what's the... What's the title come from? Um, I can't tell you. That would be a, um, a spoiler to the story. Of course, Neil Young, who's one of my favorite uh, music artists, he has an album named After the Gold Rush, but it's not a direct reference to that. Um, it is a reference to something in the story, but I can't explain it or be a spoiler. Obviously, I was looking for more of the uh, Norville link. So... Yeah, so um, it's, it is set in Orville. Um, you, you see Scout, who's the main character after the Gold Rush. She's the last scientist. Um, she's around um, Table Mountain a lot. Um, in issue three, you'll see her standing right there on Table Mountain. But um, it's not specifically related to the Gold Rush of uh, 1849. Uh, but the story is set in uh, 2449, so... Basically, uh, it looks like uh, just she's returning to Earth. Yeah, so Scout, uh, she's the last scientist, and she grew up on Titan, which is one of the moons of Saturn. And uh, then something went wrong on, on their expedition there, so she returns to Earth for the first time, um, and she finds it in a state of wilderness. It's not post-apocalyptic. There's not broken buildings and stuff. It's a really lush wilderness. You know, it looks like Northern America would look in the 16th century. Um, so she has to try to figure out what happened and try to return the scientific method to the world. But uh, she's a bit of a dork, and she only really knows about chemistry and biology. She doesn't have a lot of social skills or really other skills in general. So, you know, that's going to be the problem for her. Right. Yeah, there's, uh, apparently only the previews are on the site, so that's sort of I was going from. Yeah, and you come out there's um uh, we've also had several Kickstarters for the book, so there's a lot of page previews and concept art you can look up if you scroll through the Kickstarter campaigns as well. How did your uh, Kickstarter go? Uh really well. Uh, I've been very fortunate with the book so far. And uh, we have uh three issues out and the fourth is almost done. We're wrapping it up right now. It should be out any day now. So how much is an issue right now? Um, you can buy the issues on my site. You can download the first one for $2 for a digital copy, or it's um, I sell $10 for a printed copy and shipped. Um, so if you want an actual printed copy. Um, I don't have first edition prints anymore. I've actually published number one. They all sold out. 
hopefully have second edition prints and there's variant covers for number three and then there's like a pack you can buy for like 20 bucks where you get like four different comics and an art print of the series as well um, are you, what kind of a Kickstarter um, incentive did you end up having? Um, you know, we had a lot of different art prints, high quality art prints. Uh, for the very first one, we had some scarves made, which had the logo of the Titan mission um, that Scout was on. Uh, we had some commissions, art commissions. Um, we also had one where you could be the first person um, on Mars in the story, which that uh, will actually be shown in this issue here. So, Cool. Um, so you basically, how is, how's the skepticism influencing the, the writing of the comic? I'm um, sure. So um, skepticism with kind of a capital S is the uh, it's kind of a community of people who deal with um, um, issues that kind of attack science. So little, um, alternate medicine that's not evidentiary, um, things like, you know, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster are popular, but they, they can be things like... Um, other different kind of pseudoscientific stuff. Um, skepticism is a, is kind of an applied science to logic that is about um, dealing with the real world and um, trying to suss things out um, more detailed. And the problem is, and a lot of times in media, skeptical characters are seen as cynical, and them wanting to know the truth is seen as them being either antagonistic or not appreciating, appreciating like, the beauty in the world because they're always asking questions or if um, somebody is skeptical that there's a ghost or a monster they're almost always wrong and they get eaten by the monster um, which isn't really an accurate portrayal of real life because the people that think they're ghosts and monsters have always been wrong and um, I, th I think it's good to have kind of a skeptical character in media so people can see um, what that kind of line of thinking actually is the closest kind of we have to a popular skeptical character would be like Scully from the X-Files, but um, she's kind of a cartoon character in that sense because she's skeptical in a world where there like, are ghosts and aliens and stuff, so it doesn't really play the same as it will in After the Gold Rush, which is set in reality. Yeah, just backing up a second. Yeah, when most people mm -hmm. think they're skeptical, they usually, they're skeptics, they usually think like Dana Scully from the X-Files. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I, I love Scully and everything. She's great for what she is, but it's just like how Spock isn't always um, a good example of logical thinking. Scully's not always a good example of a skeptic. You know, we're, we're thankful to have Scully, and she's a great character, but, you know, I wanted to kind of improve upon that with uh, Scout, who is the main character of After the Gold Wish. Right. Um, style, by the way, looks pretty good. I mean, it's a little on the cartoonish side. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of any idea kind of influences your artist has? Uh, yeah, so uh, Isaac Larosa, who was the core artist for After the Gold Rush, I know that he is really influenced um, by Hellboy, and um, I think there's a Ditko influence in his work as well. But he kind of has his own style, you know. But um, I, Isaac worked with me on all the concept art, and he drew the first three issues. And um, I'm really happy with how they turned out, and I was happy to work with him. Yeah, you can see a little bit of the, I mean, not much of the Hellboy. Uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, all that has that really heavy outline style of his. Yeah. Yeah, he has those thick ink lines. But the Ditko definitely shines through. I mean, there's a lot of really nice perspective and three-dimensionality to it. Yeah. 
I mean, even along this, basically, that obviously a two-dimensional um, medium. Yeah, definitely. So, jeez. <laughs> um, and you, you obviously, you're basically having a little bit of fun with the series here and there, especially there's a lot of, uh, she's having to interact with the nature and all that. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of technology is she having to deal with on the planet side? Um, so on Earth, there isn't really much technology left in the way that we use the word. I mean, you know, there's um, there's woodworking, carpentry, and very basic agriculture, which are all forms of technology. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a very agrarian kind of paradigm that's left on Earth. Um, everything's very simple. Then they don't really have any metals. Um, Scout came from a society that's kind of like a Star Trek utopia. So this is all very different than what she's used to. She's going to have to learn to adapt. The thing is, like, she's a biologist and a chemist, so she comes from a society that's very technological, but, you know, she doesn't know metallurgy. She doesn't know, you know, engineering. She knows the fields that she has studied, and so she's not going to be able to just, you know, build uh, a new spaceship or anything. Um, she's going to try to have to figure out how she can return science to the world in a different way. So basically, she's also obviously not really up on the rest of the tech, because she's obviously a focused character. Yeah, so there's a, there's kind of a thing that people do who don't know much about the actual sciences when they write science characters, where they make them so that they know about every field and they know about medicine. And that's just not really how it goes. You know, science people who are career scientists specialize in a field. It doesn't mean they they don't have other interests, but you know. Um, if somebody's like specializing in um, otter behaviors or um, metallurgy or um, you know uh, tracking comets, they know all these minute details about those fields, and they're amazingly educated in them. But that doesn't mean that you know they know how to diagnose a virus or um, you know how to um, measure the different chemical compounds that are most advantageous for growing wheat in the fields, but you, but you get this kind of thing in um, media a lot where if somebody's the smart science character, they know everything about everything. So I'm trying to uh, write a more accurate version. Right. And basically, and luckily she's a chemist biologist, which are actually relatively aligned sciences. Yeah. So, you know, she focused on uh, creating um, genetically modified plants that could grow in a modified biodome on Titan. So that's kind of her specialty. So um, hopefully she can introduce some of what she knows back to Earth. We'll see, though. you, you got to read to find out what happens. So, but what I was referring back to being a general versus a specialist is that obviously the people she's going to be dealing with are a lot more general in terms of skills. They're going to be more master of a wide, wider range of skills than she has. Um, yeah, so the people on Earth, um, you know, they're very superstitious, uh, very religious, which is a thing she's never encountered before. So um, it's, it's definitely something different for her. She's going to have to learn how to understand these people and um, try to learn about what her place can be in this world. Right. Has she started, again, I've only got access to the previews, has she actually started sure. learning more of the general, like, carpentry, that sort of thing, or? Uh, so, at the moment, Scout is mostly uh, running away from people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, you know, the first issue follows her return to Earth, and I don't really want to spoil what happens, but, um, you know, she meets the people on Earth, and they're not necessarily in harmony in the beginning, so. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the previous show, she's definitely having uh, fun getting used to the planet. Yeah, you know, it's pretty exciting for her, because Titan is, um, is a very thick orange atmosphere. You obviously can't walk around much. Um, gravity's different. And so her body has to get used to Earth, you know. Her, um, when you grow up in a planet full gravity, it changes your muscle and bone density. So she has to deal with kind of being weakly for a little while. But uh, it's also really kind of like a wondrous thing to be on, you know, Earth where, you know, her ancestors evolved, where, where she's like supposed to be and be there for the first time. So she gets to explore for a little while until the plot starts kicking in the later half of the first issue. Yeah, it's sort of fun sort of looking at it because um, you've got her, she, she's nice and she's relatively small and frail, and the only human so far I've seen is a lot, is, well, a much more muscular male type yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, that's the Axeman, uh, who she meets in the second issue. So, yeah, I'm trying to keep this, I'm trying to keep avoiding any plot as I can. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, doesn't mean I'm not trying to get spoilers, that sort of thing, but you know. Yeah, yeah no worries. Uh, how's, how's the comparison between the superstition and the um, science going for her? Or is she just basically just running from everybody because she's really scared? Um, well, she's not scared necessarily. Um, she's a little bit confused um, by the people's response to her. Because like I said, she doesn't, you know... I have really a concept of people being prejudiced against science for religious reasons. She's never encountered religion before. It's entirely new to her. So, you know, she's just trying to survive and um, be a helpful biologist. But um, she keeps running into different um, people who don't really understand her. Um, but she makes a few friends, and she gets to meet a dog in issue three. So, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, apparently the dog and her are uh, one of the. I guess one of the art prints has her leaning back against the dog. So. Yeah, that's the cover of issue three. That's actually not Scott. It's a different character. That's Pre. That's uh, one of the girls she meets in the uh, one of the farms that she finds. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, it was. It looked like the uh, same dimension. Oh, as, no uh, worries. No worries. So. Yeah, I guess I better start with some of the other stuff. Um, to train the faithful, that looks sort of interesting. Yeah, that that was a, a my Dune um, fan comic that I made with Zach Hartong, who works with me on uh, our other comic, Clovis. Um, so you know, Dune is one of my all-time favorite novels, and uh, I'm I'm a pretty critical person when it comes to adaptations, um, and uh, I wanted to show that you can make a strict adaptation. Of a, of a pretty dense novel without having to fundamentally change either the scope, the aspect, or even the scenes too much. Um, and so this is just kind of my, my comment on um, adaptations as a medium, and then kind of a love letter to just Dune itself. So. Dune would be almost fun to see. It would be, I would think it would be really interesting for, to look at as a skeptic considering how much the philosophy and the religion is tied into the universe. Yeah, well, you know, Dune is the story of how um, 
a person uses a religion that was planted on a planet to gain power, even though they don't believe in it. And then they, they are able to overthrow an evil empire. But after they do, um, Paul, the hero of the story, ends up becoming like this messiah and a, and a jihad happens in his name and he is powerless to stop it because the religion runs wild on him. So, you know, I, Dune has a lot of important messages. Yeah, definitely. Um, like, I mean, like you said, that would just be one of those interesting aspects, like, you know, because like you said, you've got all these different religious groups and you've got the one scientific group, um, that's basically an outcast because of the, I guess, a robot revolt that happened like centuries in the past. Um, yeah, so in the in the official Dune canon, um, there wasn't really a robot revolt. That's in the um, a different version of the story that a different author wrote. But Frank Herbert, um, in his version, basically a. Uh, AI and the reliance on the technology made humans weak. And so the butler in Jihad was the removal of this technology. And, you know, they have the line, thou shalt not make a, a machine in the vein of the human mind because um, AI pretty much decimated the potential of humanity. And so instead of those kind of computers, you know, they basically engineered humans to be better through selective breeding and kind of these weird traditions of groups like the Bene Gesserit, you know, they made these superhumans, and they've been trying to to manifest this to the Quizek Sadarak, who's the supreme being. But people should just read Dune. And that's my advice. Oh, yeah. I've, I read, like, the first four books or so, so. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously when I'm saying Robot Revolution, I'm ultra-simplifying it, but. Yeah, no problem. Geez, talk about ultra simplifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're talking more of a Skynet situation, and we're talking about a robot situation. Yeah, um, yeah. Terminator is quite a bit different than than Dune, but ter Terminator is cool too, you know. Yeah. Um, well, what I'm basically looking at is the artificial intelligence that became pretty much ubiquitous all over the place. Yeah. And, and you know, there's. There is still in that in Dune with the, the Laxians, but, um, you know, they're not um, really welcomed among the Landstrad, the kind of, like, major civilization of um, the Dune universe. Yeah. Well, like you said, that's one of the reasons I thought you, the skeptic, would have all sorts of fun with the Dune universe, so... Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, it'd be nice to do... Um, to work, to work with Zach and the Dune universe some more, but uh, we're not going to unless, you know, they uh, ask us to, so. Right. Yeah, we're um, working on our, our comic series Clovis right now, which is a, a paleontology uh, st story set in the Pleistocene era, which is um, 14,000 years ago, and right. so we're trying to finish that book up and get that out this summer, so. And it's definitely when you you guys apparently have had some fun. That's where you see a little, um, which, yeah, see, I want to see that you see a lot more of the Magnolian influence, but. Yeah, um, so Zach draws that one. Um, uh, Zach Cartons is a fantastic artist. The book actually won an award for um, art. Um, so I, I'm very happy to be working with Zach on that. And uh, uh, like I said, hopefully we'll have it done 
done soon. It's been a big project. It's a full graphic novel, and I try to be very scientifically accurate with all the megafauna that are in it. Um, the story follows Maya, who is a young mother looking for her lost son, which she uh, sees a plume of smoke in the distance and hoping it's some kind of sign from him. She follows it, um, and then she runs into a, a, a giant sloth who she mistakes for a bear, because she names him No Bear, and then they go on their journey. And you get to look at um, an accurate uh, representation of the uh, Plasticine, as well as um, all the awesome megafauna that are there. And just, you know, Zach, Zach really um, uh, paints a beautiful picture of the region, just the topography and the the plants and everything. So it, it's uh, I'm really happy to work with him on it. Yeah, the, some of the sample pages look incredible on it. I mean, you've got some really great-looking sunsets, if nothing else. Yeah, like I said, um, you know, I I, I kind of design what's going to go on the page, tell the story, then Zach turns stuff in sometimes, and it just looks great. So That, and I love the coloring. The coloring has, has a real nice... What I'm basically looking at is, whereas you see a lot of... Most comics will combine the colors as much as possible. Here you have entire plateaus of colors where it's like you have like the blues here, the reds here, that sort of thing with a little bit of carryover. But generally speaking, it's sort of a nice flat, a nice flatness to it. Yeah, which is a weird thing to say in a comic book, but yeah, he um Zach does the coloring and the lettering, so uh, it, the book's just him and I, and then the cover is by Naomi Fanquaz, and she does the uh, watercolor cover you see there right and, she, and she's a wonderful artist in her own right yeah it definitely adds to the primitive feel of the book if nothing else yeah it um i kind of wanted the watercolor cover because i had to, uh, the hobbit book that i grew up with had a cover kind of like that so you know i just it's just kind of inspired it right and espers uh, Espers is a um, creation mythology comic. It uh, it follows Lotan the giant serpent. And he wakes up in the infinite nothing and he creates a universe. Um, there's just one issue that out right now, and the artist is uh, Chris Lewis Lee. Um, he lives in the English countryside. And I think you can kind of see that in his art. Um, so that book, um, I, I really want to do another one. I'm, I'm trying to get time to do it, uh, uh, but I'm really happy with how the first one turned out. Yeah, it looks like there's definitely a, a, a definite Mobius feel to some of the art, the graphics. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, Chris did a great job on all the interiors, and we designed the concept art together for all the main characters. And then, um, uh, I, yeah, I just, I'm just really happy how it turned out. You know, um, it's a little bit different than the other stuff I've written because the characters, you know, they're not human. They speak in a really different way than... Um, I write my other characters because they're, you know, they're gods, but they're just being born. So they're really new to the world. So they have a lot of wisdom about the things they understand, but they don't really understand that much. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a different read, but uh, if you're into kind of like the Cimmerillion or creation mythologies, you know, I hope you check it out. Just out of curiosity, what inspired you to go after a creation mythology? Um, I think it's probably my love of Cimmerillion and then a lot of Final Fantasy influence because I'm a big Final Fantasy fan. So I think those things kind of always tell my own little stories in my head, you know, and uh, just one I thought would be cool to tell. 
I hate going, I hate drilling on the on that obvious question, but how's that tie into how's that that almost sounds like it'd be more of a contrast with you being a skeptic than a compliment to it. Yeah, so you know I, I'm I'm an atheist. I'm not a religious person, um, but that doesn't mean I don't respect um, storytelling that you know has a theological kind of influence in the past. My there's there's still art that can be had from you know religious sources or traditions and i mean i think it's a good way to kind of defang the problems that have with the religion when you can just use their kind of cultural technology for fun and get rid of the dangerous parts so right um, yeah i mean it's just sort of interesting to see that, that kind of contrast going on yeah, I mean, it is a lot different than my other series, but, uh, you know, I wanted to make a comic with a giant serpent, dang it, so I did it. And like you said, it definitely looks like you guys had some serious fun with it. Yeah, it was it was fun to make, and uh, I hope I get to make a second issue, we'll see. I got a lot of other books I'm working on, but, you know, we'll see. Um, I mean, besides the uh, serpent, you've also got apparently a uh, woodland god, or a fire god. Yeah, so there's um, Amaru, he's he's the god of the earth, and then there's Nilil, she's the sky goddess. Okay. And those are the three you'll run into in the first issue. Okay. And ATGR? Uh, ATGR is after the gold rush. So it's basically uh, how attached to, what kind of, yeah, where does it fit into the chronology of the gold rush? Uh, so the um, after the Gold Rush web comic takes place before the events of the first issue. It's a prequel. Okay. So you get to see Scout learn to become a, a scientist with their mother and father. That's definitely a, just obviously it's an entirely different artist. Uh, Naomi Frank. Uh, Naomi Frankwas, uh, she does the second um, series and of uh, the uh, webcomic. And then uh, the first um, one was by David Jensen. Okay. Um, yeah, it's definitely interesting because the art, I mean, obviously the art's going to be entirely different than the, uh, the comic book. Yeah, you know, I, I work with a bunch of different artists, you know, uh, while Zach's drawing the main pages, someone else can do the webcomic. So it's a good way to get different people drawing scouts. It's always cool. It's cool to see the interpretation, you know. Right. Um, it's also interesting to see the technology they play with on Titan. Yeah, um, it, it was a fun part to get the right to some more sci-fi kind of stuff because on Earth, you know, she doesn't have a lot of that shit, so. Even though some of the fashion is a little bit on the scary side. <laughs> Sorry, it's just one of those things that always cracks me up. Is the further in the future you go into, the more it looks like everybody's wearing pajamas. Yeah, pajamas are good, man. I mean, you know, they're not on Earth. They have to wear these suits that make it so they can get into their spacesuits. So, right. It's also interesting to see is also the amount of uh, holographic technology going around. Yeah, so you basically, um, they have a device, you take your middle finger and you just press it towards the bottom of your palm, then open up, and it'd be like your phone. It, it projects the, um, the, the user interface right there, 
and then you can um, extend it out, and then like almost like Spider-Man, like his webbing, you can have the holographic style technology come forth from that. So it gives you a lot of interfaces to, um, you know, write on, view whatever images you want, etc. And blogs? I mean, you've got segments for blogs and podcasts, so... Oh, oh, my website? Yeah, you know, um, I don't write as many blogs as I probably should or people want me to, but, um, you know, I wrote one a while ago about Star Trek and um, how I think the TOS um, has some really brilliant episodes that are kind of written much smarter than a lot of modern television. I don't think TOS gets enough credit for um, how elegant it it works its characters into its plots. And then um, as a Final Fantasy fan, I wrote a really long blog, which actually I think the most read thing I've ever written, um, detailing every single Final Fantasy game. So that that was fun to write. And then I had a, a I also do some science posts. Like I had a, a blog about um, why people shouldn't want to mandate GMO labeling, for example. Right. Yeah, so uh, people could check, people could check those out if they want, but you know my my main focus is my comics, but you know occasionally I want to write something else. So yeah, definitely looks like you had some fun with the uh, blogs. But that's you know I'm more of uh, when it comes to TOS, I'm more of the uh, second season. So sure, yeah, uh, you know t- there are some bad episodes of TOS, but uh, I think it's a I think it's a very important show, and uh, it doesn't always get enough credit for how smart it's written. So, well, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a reason. There's an actual reason. It's a cultural, considered a cultural icon. Yeah, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and of course, it doesn't help that we had one of the major screenwriters for it uh, just recently die. So, yeah, it's bad. Just to clarify, uh, Harlan Ellison, just to make sure everybody yeah. knows. Yeah. <laughs> so, jeez. Sorry, it's one of my favorite stories about him relative to Star Trek is uh, obviously he wrote the uh, city on uh, uh, the edge of tomorrow. Right, basically known as the one where Edith Keeler dies. Yeah, it's um, it's my favorite episode. So, well, anyway, the catch is that he the script he originally wrote for it had absolutely was way off canon. He put in elements that Roddenberry had made a point were not supposed to be in Star Trek. Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard because, you know, you want to make it an optimistic future, but you do need drama to tell a good story, so there's always a kind of struggle there with good Star Trek stories, so. Well, in this case, he put uh, one of the crew members was uh, pushing drugs. Oh, I see. Also, uh, there's a lot of uh, specific credit amounts thrown around. Mm. And the Federation obviously is a non-money uh, type, not yeah, non, non-money situation. It's basically as long as you have the you know the resources to do something, you can pull it off type of deal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So he was fired, or yeah, he's basically fired, and they took had to rewrite the script. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you see the drug? You remember the drug pusher in the script in the episode? Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. But I didn't, I didn't know all that. The rest of the tidbits there. I uh, know. I mean, he, it wasn't just like uh, pushing a little bit, like they had in the story, where it's like a minor issue. It was actually uh, they had actually had a 
Kramer's actually addicted to the various substances. Oh, did, didn't know that. We're talking like a New York-style drug-running situation. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. So, anyway, so they expunged some of the elements and t- tamed a few of the other ones out, and will obviously fi- film the episode. The yeah. fun part is, is that he's then submitted both the script and the episode, I mean the script that Harlan had written, not the new version, Plus, they submitted the episode as well for the Peabody Award. Oh, cool. The fun part is that both of them won. Yeah, well, they should, because it's fucking great. Well, but, you know, that's just one of those weird side stories. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, so obviously, where are you planning on taking all this? I mean, you have some sort of grand plan, or are you just basically doing what you can at the moment? Uh, for after the gold rush, it's all written out, you know. It's just making it, getting it drawn, getting it funded, and printing it, you know, which is a process. Um, Clovis is, you know, my script is done. Zach's just finishing it up. It, we should have it done this summer, so. Okay, that should be interesting. How, how uh, you you another Kickstarter for Clovis or? Uh, Clovis is already Kickstarted and done, so you know, we're just just gotta get it finished and out to people. So that's cool. Uh, just out of curiosity, what kind of, what kind, how are you having success with the Kickstarters? What are you doing differently or more effectively than others? Uh, I think that I'm writing stories that aren't a bunch of zombies and people fighting each other for no reason. I think people want something different, you know? I'm writing stories about the beauty of the natural world, and I think people like that. Um, and so I think that that's really helped me find an audience. Okay. Are you anything in terms of marketing, or are you just simply putting the information out? Um, I think because of the subject matter, I've got a decent number of, um, you know, interviews, podcasts, attention from different science kind of skeptic sources. So I think that that's helped me find an audience. But I also think that my artists are really talented and people just like to see their stuff. So I'm really thankful for the people I work with and um, all the early fans that were really happy to see it, like a skeptic main character that supported the book have really um, helped it go with the first card, Kickstarter and then the uh, the subsequent ones. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I know it's just curious because I know most of the Kickstarters tended to not really do so well or tended to die really quick. So. Yeah, I, I think mine have all, all of mine have been successful. I've run eight different Kickstarters and everyone has been funded, no problem. So. Nice. Yeah, pretty happy about that. You know, I get to make the books I want to make, and that's really all I'm trying to do. So, well, yeah, definitely. Looks like you're able to find some really talented artists. Yeah, thank you. I think they're pretty darn good. Well, all right. Anything else? And now that you have an opportunity for a mandatory plug. Uh, sure. So I do have my new series coming out. Um, which you didn't talk about. It's called Puck the Artist. It's a it's an adventure story about a world where everything that exists is drawn into existence. So um, uh, the world is all black and white. There's no color, but there used to be. But the people don't know that. So the adventure is about them trying to figure out what happened and return color to the world. Um, and you see the characters have the ability to draw things into existence. So like if you want a birthday cake, you can you know take up a uh, uh, a pencil and draw yourself one. Or, um, you know, if you want to build a building, you, you get some large charcoal and start scratching it up. 
So, you know, the world has a really interesting the way that it's put together. And um, we're doing a uh, Garrett Reichardt, and he is a fantastic artist in his own right. So you can really see his cool kind of uh, classical style, classical cartoony style um, um, work with the story in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Wish you had more of a sample for that, just for the record. But um, I think you can see you can see a couple pages on my website. Um, it's just in the middle there. It's called Puck the Artist. Yeah, I've tried clicking on it a couple of times now. Um, there's a, a few, if you click right and left, you can see some of the pages. Okay. And uh, also we have uh, what amounts to about a first issue up on Tapas, the web, the web comic app. So here I can send you that link and you can check that out if you like. But uh, that will be kickstarting that as soon as we fi I finish up Clovis. So I wanted to get that finished out before I keep starting my next book. But as soon as I do, I'll be putting this one out in the world. So. Okay. And your uh, URL is after the space. Yeah, after the space, and you can find me on Twitter at goldrushcomic, or if you just Google Miles Grab, you'll find me. Okay. Well. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Anything else you have to love to say? No, man. Uh, thanks for talking to me, and uh, I hope people check out my books and uh, have a good night. All right, have a good one. Yeah, cheers.